Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today I am joined by Tom Nelson, who is president of Made to Flourish, a network that empowers pastors to lead churches that produce human flourishing for the common good. He is also the senior pastor of Christ Community Church in Leewood, Kansas, and serves as a council member for the Gospel Coalition. So we have him on today to talk about his new book, uh, which was released this year, 2017, called The Economics of Neighborly Love. So, Tom, your book is about connecting theology and economics to the church so the church can love our neighbors in our everyday work. You kind of have a vision for the church that has that is gospel-related, uh, but also talks about economics. So, can you tell us a little bit about your vision? Yeah, it's great to be with you, Doug. And um, I think, first of all, probably my vision is that the church would be fully present in the world and be faithful to the gospel and all its implications in all nook and crannies of life. Uh, and much of my vision, if you want to call that, or my heartbeat comes out of my own failures as a pastor. So I'd love to share a little bit with you about that because my own background kind of put me in a position of why would I write this book? I often get asked by questions like, why would a pastor write on economics? Because there seems to be a wide chasm for many people between theology and economics, which is not true, sadly, but many of us pastors have a perception of that. So, just in my own background, uh, I grew up in a strong Christian home, but as a Christian home that really did not connect Sunday to Monday. Uh, the gospel was primarily my relationship with Jesus, and that's important, but not thinking deeply about its deep interconnectivity to everyday life. So, I've been on quite a journey to try to be more faithful to Scripture, more faithful to the gospel, and tease out the implications of the gospel for all life. Because as a pastor, I spent what I call, you know, uh, malpractice is what I call it. For several years in my ministry, I really didn't equip people for the majority of their life. Uh, I focused on a slim minority and did not think of the full implications of the scriptures and the gospels to everyday life. So that's why I've been on quite a journey to try to connect Sunday to Monday better, better and to help pastors do that. And the book is geared for Christian leaders and pastors to connect Sunday to Monday better. You know, I, I kind of had the opposite reaction when I saw that a pastor wrote a book that was uh, heavily, heavily connected to economics. As I was like, really, this is this is great. I, I don't I I see that to me. I'm on the other side. I'm like, well, yeah, we need more of this. So I'm really thankful that you that you wrote this. One of the uh, uh, my father-in-law run, owns a business. He's been a business owner for a couple decades, and he he often says that he goes to church on Monday because yeah. doing work in the marketplace is, in some sense, doing church. Uh, and so, it, you know, he doesn't seem to have a problem with the Sunday to Monday gap. But what do you think the reason for that has has been in the, in the church for the last well, probably several decades, at least? Well, I think that's a really astute question, Doug, because uh, it was Haddon Robinson, who was a professor of homiletics, said in the 20th century, he said the greatest heresy of the 20th century for the church is a sacred-secular dichotomy. So I think if we follow that back from platonic dualism, understanding sort of a compartmentalized view of life, we understand how serious that is in terms of the full implications of the gospel. So there are many reasons why. I would share just a couple from my own experience, if I may. Uh, first of all, I have a wonderful pietistic tradition, and I'm not against pietism. Pietism matters. 
But I think it also blinded me to the fullness of the gospel, not only when we die and go to heaven, but to now, to everyday life, how important the scripture speaks to the temporal and not diminishing this world. Uh, And so I think that's the biggest thing in my background, but also my theological training. I've said that to many of my uh, seminary professors. I went to a fine seminary. I learned a lot. Maybe it was just my own density. But we spend a lot of time trying to build a case for systematic theology that helps to give logical consistency to the biblical text. And that does matter. Systematic theology is important. But we didn't spend the same amount of time with biblical theology that brings what I would call a canonical or a biblical coherence. It helps connect the threads all the way through the biblical text. So I think some of it was my training. I think my training focused on one particular area that was more systematized and did not deal with the sort of coherence of the whole scripture and how the gospel from creation to consummation profoundly speaks into everyday life. So I think it was some of my theological training Training, uh, that was somewhat reductionistic and myopic, and my own pietistic background kind of blinded me. You know, Abraham Heschel, the great rabbi, said that the danger in life, or at least one of the greatest dangers for all of us, is that we tend, you know, to see what we know rather than know what we see. And so I really began to take a fresh look at the biblical text, particularly the early chapters of Genesis and the Hebrew text. I love Hebrew, and I began to go, "Whoa, I'm, I've been missing some things uh, here. I didn't. I have not been seeing some things. I thought I knew some things." And then studying the reformers again, I began to realize that the reformers, the great Protestant reformers, not only brought the gospel back to the church and the authority of scripture and the importance of every priest and a believer, but they really got vocation right and the importance of work and life. So I think those things really contributed to help me reframe my thinking theologically that reframed my pastoral paradigm that profoundly reframed our pastoral practices in our congregational life. I really believe a clergy flourish then congregations flourish and cultures impacted. And I think clergy, congregation, culture, it moves in that direction. You know, for me, it was uh, sometime around seminary, I started realizing that the Bible spoke a lot about our daily lives and yes. what, what is it like to bring heaven on earth. Uh, I think N.T. Wright kind of influenced me in that direction. And I started realizing that my heart for, you could call it social justice, uh, led me to realize, you know, I probably need to know a little bit of economics uh, to to understand how do we how do we promote human flourishing without some dangerous consequences. And I I had no interest in economics prior to that sort of realization. What was it for you that that got you realizing that that this is an important subject for Christians to to think about? And how much I should also ask how much economics do you think pastors should know? I mean, they you probably don't <laughs> think they need to get a master's degree in it, but at what level do you kind of encourage your pastor friends to to engage? in that uh, in that discipline you know you're asking some very good questions and very comprehensive ones um, first of all I'd say my own journey and maybe we can go what pastors should know about economics next but my own journey profoundly shaped this I grew up in a single parent home my dad died when I was young <clears throat> so I understood what it was like living in a large family with a single parent trying to survive and being involved with a local church but the church not speaking in to the economic life of my single parent mom So I personally experienced the shame, the struggle of not being resourced adequately in an economic way uh, in terms of what it meant for my life. So I have a really heart for those who are in an economic under-resourced situation. And obviously, as you said, that many times our solutions to people that are in a, a lack of resources, economic resources, is not the answer. It actually hurts things which I don't want to do. But my own background uh, is to be the poor kid on the bus and feeling the shame, the struggle with my clothes, why our house wasn't painted. I felt deeply as a child um, that economic impoverishment and human flourishing 
uh, are antithetical, that economic well-being doesn't mean it has to be prosperous and filled with indulgence, but economic well-being and spiritual well-being and whole whole human well-being go together. So I experienced that as a kid um, on a very personal existential level. And I want to share that because, not to glorify that, but I really uh, came to grips with it as I got older, that economic flourishing matters for people and that God cares about that. Um, and then when I went through seminary and then became a pastor, I began to think, Wow, you know the macroeconomics I took in college and a business in business classes really mattered. And but what did my theology speak into it? So I would say that's where I it took me a long time because I had a real silo in my thinking between theology and economic theory, uh, and that was a problem with theology as much as was a problem with my lack of understanding of economics. So I just say my own experience personally as a child. Uh, being in a single-parent home, my mom worked really hard, but it was a very difficult economic situation, and I felt the lack of economic well-being profoundly. It gives me a heart for those who are under-resourced. Uh, and then in my economics classes in college, I understood economics mattered. It was an important discipline, but I didn't put it together until I was a pastor because my theology was kind of siloed. So I would say that's just my background of why economics didn't matter. And and when I wrote Work Matters, which was another book I wrote uh, a few years ago, I really tried to help people realize their importance of their own individual work. And that is important in scripture, that we are called and we steward our work well for the glory of God. But I didn't make the connection of the importance of work in terms of my neighbor, that our work is never done you know, in an isolation. We're part of a broader working network called the economy, and that matters. So work Work matters really focus on individual work, but the economics of never love then teases that out to the implications in a global world. So I would say that's kind of my history, my story quickly, but uh, we can also talk about why, how much pastors should know about economics if you want to go there. I think they should know quite a bit. But I mean, that's the framework. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. I mean, it's, it, it, it's a way of embracing that, that sort of tired cliche, all truth is God's truth. And if we can learn something from the discipline of economics, we can also see that it, that it connects to the real world. And you, you felt that personally uh, as a child and as, as a pastor who ministers to others. So, yeah, I mean, how, how much education should a pastor get? Well, I think what's needed in, in most, most pastoral life is we need to go from theology to economics, but we can't live in a silo. Uh, and many churches and pastors and leaders help things like Financial Peace University, which I applaud. It's helping people manage the resources God has given them, and that's a good thing. And many pastors and churches and leaders are involved with that. For financial well-being and financial fitness and health, that's a good thing. That matters a great deal uh, to marriage, to life, uh, to our communities. But I don't think pastors think enough about not just the importance of helping people as disciples manage the resources and being good steward of the resources, but the importance of wealth creation and creating economic capacity for others uh, and adding value to others. So that intersects with the economy. And I think that's where many pastors really don't think, I certainly didn't think for a long time of the importance of not only having compassion, but having capacity. So the thesis of the book and uh, that I wrote is built on Luke chapter 10 and the good Samaritan response that Jesus gives to the great commandment. He interprets the great commandment to love God and your neighbor, and he gives the story of the Good Samaritan. And what I'm trying to make a case here in the book is the Good Samaritan parable, which many people miss, I think, because of poor exegesis, 
really has a double contrast. It, has a, it certainly has an emphasis on compassion because the stunning contrast is the religious leaders do not have compassion for the person who is robbed, beaten, and left dead by the road, right? But the Samaritan does. Most likely he was a business person, probably not a clergy, or, the, or that would be listed in the text. So in Jesus' story, he's the unlikely hero because he crosses all boundaries of prejudice, economics, to meet a, a need of a neighbor. So Jesus talks about the compassion of the Samaritan, but what is often missed is the capacity the Samaritan had to be compassionate. So the Luke chapter 10 parable, what many people miss in their exegesis, I think, is it begins with an economic reality. It's an economic contrast in the parable. The man who's left beaten dead by the road is a victim of economic injustice. Uh, Someone has robbed him of what is rightfully his and left him dead. So then you have the contrast at the very end of the economic generosity and capacity of the Good Samaritan who gives up what he has for someone else in taking him to the inn and even putting down, you know what I call his American Express card, right? So what we often miss is that Jesus anchors the great commandment, which I think most of us think is pretty important, right? It summarizes the Old Testament, to love God, love your neighbor, but how do we do that and what does it require? And what I'm trying to say is that the more I study the scriptural text, and starting first with Jesus, but we can go back to, to creation, what I find there is that to truly love our neighbors, then we not only need to have the compassion of Christ, we need to have the economic capacity to do that. And the thesis of the book, Doug, is simply this, and it's built out of Luke chapter 10, but it takes a lot of scriptural text into account as we go from theology to economics. The thesis of the book is this, when we have compassion without capacity, we have frustration, because we were designed to be generous from creation on, right? But when we have capacity without compassion, we have alienation. This is the picture of, you know, the the rich guy who has built builds bigger and bigger barns and is oblivious to his stewardship before God and his community, right? His abundance. But if we have compassion and capacity together, then we have human transformation, then we have human love. So truly neighborly love. So what I'm trying to say is that both compassion and capacity matter. And we need to think about building capacity. Uh, and not just about having compassion. So I try to build the case for that, and I try to go from biblical exegesis through the scriptures to economic theory and bring them together, hopefully in a harmonious way that's responsible for both. Your book definitely connects those two very smoothly, and one of the words that shows up, or one of the phrases that shows up in the book a lot is human flourishing. And you you talk about how it usually, you know, most people think of human flourishing, and if they're a little more theologically inclined, they think of the word shalom, and they kind of they kind of go from the whole idea of you know right relationships with each other, right relationship with God, uh, all things are you know all things are good. But you also connect it to the idea of doing work and like daily work, not like not not in sort of the faith versus works paradigm, but the idea of going to work and doing work well and flourishing. So, how does our vocation, our career, our daily, our weekly work uh, connect to the idea of human flourishing? Well, I think when you think about human flourishing, Doug, it's really important to understand we begin in Genesis. I mean, that was part of what I had such a Sunday to Monday gap in my teaching and my thinking, my theology and paradigms, because I did not do enough work in Genesis 1 through 3. So if we go back there, we do see that there is a deep connection to human flourishing and how God designed this in the garden to this cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is a theological term that often people describe uh, Genesis 1.28. But after humans are made in God's image, right? That great text of, of uh, biblical anthropology that we're made in God's image, right? Right after that, we're given the cultural mandate. What's amazing about this text in Genesis 1.28 is there are five Hebrew imperatives tacked together like a train, 
So these five Hebrew imperatives give the human job description even before sin and death enter the world as image bearers in the Imago Dei, because image in Hebrew is salem, and that means both connection and reflection, right? So we are connected, like you said, in deep relationship because we have a relational God. So this idea of human flourishing is tied to proper relationships is exactly right with God and others, because as Brian Fickert says, ultimately poverty is a relational poverty with God, others, and a community. But it's not just relational. You know, this is where Genesis 1 through 2 is often emphasized. It's like, you know, uh, get married, have babies, okay? And, and really, that is important. But if we understand the cultural mandate, the cultural mandate in Genesis 1, 20 says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion, and subdue it. That's five incredible Hebrew imperatives that frame our place in an integral creation before sin and death disintegrate it, right? So if we do good exegesis of Genesis 1 and 2, then we see that the primary imperative that leads the train is this English translation, be fruitful. I just want to highlight this because the word underneath fruitful is para. And in the Torah, in the Old Testament, this idea of fruitfulness or para has two primary meanings. And this leads to flourishing in economics and work. The first one is procreativity. In other words, that is in marriage and life, having children and being reproductive, right? But the cultural mandate is not just about having babies. Genesis 2 is not just about having babies. In fact, that gets to the very end. It's primarily the second meaning, which is productivity, right? And both these, these, these imperatives that follow be fruitful give both the sense of multiplication of procreativity and the effectiveness of productivity in the created order cultivating blessing from the created order. So I just want to say that if we're going to make the connection, we have to do it theologically and biblically. And Genesis 1 and 2 really help us understand that the cultural mandate, how humans fit in the created order, even before death and sin enter the world, is to be fruitful. What does that mean? It means to be procreative and productive. So the theme of productivity, or we may say being fruitful or adding value to others using economic terms, right, adding value to others is woven into the creation design even before sin and death enter the world. And when Genesis 3 hits, right away we see not only shalom vandalized, we see para vandalized. Because in Genesis 3, the first indication of the curse is both para of procreativity and productivity being affected. Remember, right away, in having babies, there is pain in childbirth, right? Right away in productivity of the earth and farming and tilling, there is thorns and thistles. So, I'm saying it's really important to understand Genesis 1 to 3. If we understand that, then we begin to make the connection of fruitfulness, and that fruitfulness all the way through Scripture. Jesus will talk about it in the upper room, right, with disciples of being fruitful, bearing much fruit. It's not just intimacy with God. It's not just as important as the character of Christ and the filling of the Spirit. It is the productivity of life. Bearing much fruit is a full idea of living fully into the cultural mandate. And if we understand that, then it profoundly shapes how fruitfulness, human fruitfulness and flourishing, and how we add value to others through our work is a profoundly economic reality. So, I mean, we have to build a bridge to economic well-being and economic monetization and value creation through the theology, I think, of neighborly love and fruitfulness. That's how it connects to human flourishing. Yeah, you know, you're, what you're saying there pairs well, complements well with what Julian Simon uh, talked about with, you know, the human mind, the human ability to, to be productive, uh, not, not simply procreative, uh, is why we can have such a population growth and yet still not all starve to death, as, as some people had predicted. Or, um, right. And so, you know, that, that gives a, 
it gives more, honestly, it, you know, it's funny for me, I have kids, the whole be fruitful and multiply thing. Well, that, it doesn't mean I'm done. I also have to be fruitful in other ways too, is, is sort of what you're saying, I suppose. Yeah. And, and a theology of singleness, singleness, I don't think is a part of Genesis three. I mean, some people are called to be single. Jesus says that. So I'm saying even the theology of singleness, if it's just procreativity, then if we're infertile or we don't have children or we lose our children, then how do we fit into God's story? So we've not emphasized enough the creation design of being fruitful. And part of that fruitfulness is productivity. Of course, that powerfully shapes our work, uh, our work ethic, what we do, how we do it, and how it shapes uh, a global economy how we add value to a global economy. Yeah, you know, it brings to mind being productive and being fruitful in that in that way is, you know, we we talk about we often talk about economic growth, you know, our politicians talk about it, people who are in, you know, in business, they want to grow because they see their whether you know, for whatever reason, they could be greedy or they could be, you know, see their work like my father-in-law does as part of ministering to others, but they want to they want to grow and yet there's a lot of I would say that it might be a lot of, there's a part of our culture that looks at economic growth as dangerous in some way, and yet I see it as something that it needs to happen if we're going to help Africa get out of poverty, if we're going to help you know, any parts of the developing world grow at all, there has to be some sort of economic growth. So do you, do you see any concern about economic growth, um, or maybe, maybe there are more side effects? Maybe you can talk a little bit about you know, what, what does economic growth give us, and maybe what are some things that we can be wary of? Yeah, again, that's a really astute question, and it's a complicated question that deserves a lot of thought. I think, first of all, from let's just start from Scripture. I think there's a strong call to wealth creation. And with that wealth creation and a dynamic of wealth creation, and we've seen that, you know, when we think about where we are today in a global world and the economic well-being of a billion people taking out of abject poverty through the free market, um, creating wealth is a part of our creation mandate. The question for me, and again, there are different streams of thought. I mentioned that in the book, more a Pelagian, Augustonian view of wealth, monetary, material wealth. There are many kinds of wealth, by the way, but that kind of wealth, um, I think there's a real important theory uh, and emphasis in scripture of stewarding wealth well, the wealth creation and stewarding wealth. Um, one of the things that stood out to me as I, as I worked on this para, this fruitful theme throughout scripture, isn't it amazing that in the wisdom literature, the crescendo of Proverbs is a woman immersed in commerce. Now, she's not only a mom, but she's immersed in commerce. She's exchanging goods at the gate. But it's a, the epitome of wisdom is not a priest or a king, it's a woman engaged in commerce and business and economic activity as the epitome of the Proverbs 31 woman. I mean, Proverbs builds to this. So I'm just saying there, that to me st- speaks loudly to the importance of economic activity, economic flourishing, its value creation in an economy, uh, and it's ensconced in the wisdom literature which is really important in scripture. So I'm just saying, I think we should really think deeply about the importance of stewarding wealth, the importance of proper commerce. And of course, there's all kinds of warnings against greed, but greed can be greed of power. It can be greed of of wealth. And we should guard against that. I mean, greed like power or anything else can be abused and it needs to be accountable. So crony capitalism, I mean, there's all kinds of ways we see that. Uh, where it's not value creation, it's value extraction. So I would just say that the, the primary thrust of Scripture to me is the importance of wealth creation, creating opportunity, adding value to others, and that 
whatever wealth, whether it's monetized or not, it's a high stewardship to whom much is given, much is required. And to steward that and to steward it well for the glory of God and the good of the community is important. One of the ways I love to think about it, and I highlight this in the book, is the economics of mutuality or something like that where we look at our economic activity not in isolation of just maximizing shareholder value. That is important if we're a public company, right? Because grandma maybe have her pension money in that stock. I mean, you know, it, it, it is important. But there are more things to consider. I think that's where people have a strong pushback between sort of a rapacious, they view capitalism or crony capitalism or just the bottom line of just monetization and injuring the environment or not caring for employees. So, I mean, I think when we think about the Christian faith speaking into a free market framework, the values of culture care, the values of um, Helping others have opportunity, the values of fairness. Now, I don't know all what that means, but the scriptures do talk in Corinthians about trying to level the playing field. Again, I'm not talking about redistribution, but there is a sense of not only freedom and opportunity, but fairness and oppor- fairness of opportunity and so forth. Not necessarily exact outcomes, but, but I do think that those are the kind of things we should be thinking about, that wealth creation is a good thing. Uh, biblically, I believe that it has to be stewarded well. It has to be stewarded responsibly. And I love the economics and mutuality kind of threefold bottom line. It's a good way to at least think about it, that profit matters, uh, but people matter and the planet matters. So there are multiple stewardships that we need to think about. But I always say that a free market economy is the, is the best worst system we have. It's by far better than command and control. Yeah, by far, of course. And, you know, what you're saying is is so true and so many people miss out on the fact that you know there are many people who become wealthy or become you know business owners maybe not wealthy by you know, by some people's standards but they are responsible for others and they take this task seriously and they don't see profit as just their own for themselves. So what you're saying, you know, the First Corinthians passage, you know, it at the very least, it's about considering others, considering how is my flourishing individually, which could be happening, affecting others. Is it is it a, is somehow because there are scenarios where there's zero sum situations, and then others, it's like, oh well, I'm flourishing, and so so are my employees, so are the people around me because of because of our our mutual co- cooperation. I like your distinction there, and I think there's a sense where on a microeconomic level, sometimes in a smaller system, there is a sum-zero game. And that's part of that equality idea. But in a macro system level, economics, as we know, is not a zero-sum game. There is a dynamic of wealth creation that my wealth creation does not, and often just the opposite, does not hinder your wealth creation. But as long as there's fairness and good rules and so forth. Yeah, yeah, well, we won't get into the politics that creates zero sum, but um, I, I did want to ask you, um, I've always had this thought that the many Christians who are against government involvement in welfare or, or, or heavy government involvement in anything are typically going to say, well, it really shouldn't be the job of government, it should be the job of the church to take care of those who are in need. And my, my response to that is, well, yeah, but... I don't think that it means there's a I think there's a false binary between the charitable efforts of the church or just charitable efforts of people who are Christians or or generous people versus there's government welfare for the poor and I I feel like once I read your book you seem to be advocating an additional way for the church to promote human flourishing because there isn't just those two choices. Um I I would often 
I would probably admit that the church, if it were just about charity, if that's all it could be doing, would not be able to take care of everybody. You know, the, the United States church would not be able to take care of every poor person in the United States. Right. Um, it, it's too big of a task. However, promoting the common good in the way that you're talking about economic flourishing I believe eventually will. Uh, maybe not every single individual, but, but but in a sense that we can look at our society and say, "Wow, we 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 virtually have no poor people." You know, I, and I love that because I think there is a place if you just want to use basic safety net. I want to argue all that, but I do think the church, if we really connect Sunday to Monday, if we see the implications of the gospel in an economic way, then we're going to be serious about the common good. We're going to be serious about how do we help under-resourced in a godly way have greater job opportunity, job creation, entrepreneurship, right? Job training, helping people create wealth and have more, you know, have the kind of dignity of their own kind of job. So, I mean, that should be on a macro level, a local church should be deeply committed to help nourish that kind of city, that kind of community where opportunity is available and people are helping create jobs and nourishing economic opportunity and nourishing entrepreneurship. I just think many times the church has only just done immediate charity, but has not thought about the importance of equipping their congregation, collaborating with other partnerships, businesses, and creating a more vital economic ecosystem where the poor or poor truly have opportunity. I know Andy Krauss says this well, but he said, I think how you determine if a city's flourishing is not just the programs, uh, whatever private or public sector, it is where individuals who are most vulnerable in a city are actually becoming less and less vulnerable economically and personally. And I think that's exactly right. You know, one of the, I forget which parable it is, but the parable of the I think it's the tenants where the guy goes out in the middle of the day and he's looking for people to do work for him. And yeah. he's like, Hey, you're just standing around. Let, you know, having that heart of like, let me, let me put you to work. Yeah. It's a great parable. And I don't think it's just accidental. I mean, Jesus was, he is a small businessman. He really was. He was in a carpentry shop. The more we know about it, uh, he understood the market. He understood the economy. He understood work. He understood basic life. And it's amazing how the carpenter from Nazareth teaches so much of the parables in the marketplace. It's not accidental. Yeah, we have another guest who uh, is coming on, uh, we believe, in a few weeks. He's th he says that he thinks anything we can know about economics, we can probably get from the parables of Jesus. So, uh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm eager to see what, what he has to There's say about that. Yeah, <laughs> so, you know, in your book, you, you, I'm going to quote something from your book here. The spiritual formation of a more virtuous people is an important task that the local church is uniquely empowered and, pos and positioned to accomplish. I would say, in, in some ways, that's sort of your hope is that, that the church and pastors who are leading the church would would understand that that is their that is their task, and if there's any there's no better organization to equip people for flourishing than the church. Yeah, I believe that, and I think we uh, would have to agree, most of us, that in a free market world, well, even that virtue matters in the exchange, the economic exchange of people, right? That no matter what system you have, and in a free market uh, system, particularly, it requires a virtuous people. Um, that's where we see crony capitalism or abuses of the system or whatever it is. But where do people gain their virtue for the common good? Um, certainly there's a family component, there's a community component, but the local church is uniquely positioned with supernatural resources of the gospel, the power of the spirit to help form people in more Christ-like living uh, that has the kind of virtue. Peter will talk about virtue. Jesus was speaks a lot about Stoic virtue in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm just saying the local church, if we're a community of faith, it's an ongoing nurturing community 
we not only inform people about virtue, but we have the power of the Spirit to live more virtuous lives. The biggest challenge for us, I think, for many of us, Doug, for me it was for many years, is I had too much of a disconnect between virtue on Sunday and virtue in the workplace. I didn't spend enough time helping people think through how the workplace is a formative aspect of their spiritual life. They did Bible studies, other good spiritual disciplines, which I believe in. But I think there's a long way to go to help people understand that the work we do every day in the marketplace of life is a primary place where we're spiritually formed in Christ. So it's not only we bring virtue to the marketplace, the marketplace itself, if we understand how God designed it, is a place for us to deepen our virtue, to grow in our virtue. And I think that's a really big place where the church needs to focus. I mean, not only do we bring virtue to the workplace because of our faith community, our commitments, um, our spiritual formation in Christ, but our work itself, I think, is a very highly formative way that God transforms us in the community. So what I want to do is I want to switch to another topic that's it's talked about in your book, and that is the subject of poverty. And you you touch on this in a couple of chapters, actually. Actually, I shouldn't say you touch on it. You actually you talk about it uh, uh, pretty much. There's there's this uh, there's this character on TV, Parks and Recreation, who's a libertarian, and and he's often uh, it's very very humorous. His name is Ron Swanson, and and I'm sure I don't know if you've seen the the show or not, but he has this quote that it drives me nuts because it's not really what libertarians say about poor people, but he says that liber- that capitalism is God's way of determining who is smart and who is poor, and it's just a horrible quote. And like I don't know any libertarian would actually would actually admit that, but that was sort of the way he's represented, and I think a lot of people. Do do think that if any anti-capitalist person, people who are very skeptical about you know pro-market things, they they think that people like me believe that about poor people that that if you're believe in capitalism, then you must think that poor people are lazy or um, or that poor people are are not smart uh, or something like that. And so the Bible definitely tells us something very different about the about the poor and about our attitudes toward the poor. Um, so what what does the Bible tell us about God God's heart for the poor? It's a really important theme uh, in Scripture from beginning to end. I want to say that strongly. God has a deep heart for the poor. Um, Again, I would frame poverty first in a relational poverty and not just in economic poverty, not to minimize economic poverty. Uh, And what we see in Scripture are there are many dynamics affecting those who are in under-resourced situations. The prophets speak greatly about economic systems that are unjust, oppression, and that's something we have to watch. I mean, systems can... Uh, overly tax or create burden on those who are under-resourced. So, there's a systemic aspect that the Bible talks about that we must not miss. There's also an individual one, right? I mean, like Proverbs talks about slothfulness as one example. So, economic poverty has many realities, many sources, many factors. And I just think that's really important not to be simplistic, reductionistic. But I would say, you know, like in your statement about this libertarian language about smart people are rich, um, yeah. What 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 is the problem with that? It's a, I understand people are saying uh, some of them are real conniving, but it's like the idea here, at least as I understand Scripture, is that all of us can bring value creation to others based on our gifts and calling and our faithfulness and our work. Some of that value creation is valued higher in monetized terms in a free market economy, right? I mean, it's like. My friend who's a baseball player has paid an enormous amount of money, and we can argue about how much they should be paid, but he can hit a fastball that I can't do. So, I mean, I'm just saying there's part of our system rewards a supply and demand of value, right? Value creation that's monetized. 
So some of that's the case, or a teacher, you know, in a school, in an under-resourced school, might be working really hard and adding value, but are is paid very different in terms of monetization. So I just I would say that that's a recognition of our system, um, and I would say also that we need to understand biblically that much of our work is not monetized, that our value is not based on its monetization, not to minimize that. That's a certain aspect of it. But much of our life from cradle to grave is called to add value to others. Much of that is not monetized. And that too has high value. So when we think about the poor and understanding scripture, that's where I would just say that we need to think about, yes, there are many factors of poor. There are systemic factors or individual factors. Some people are lazy. I mean, that that's part of what what has happened. Uh, but there are many factors and we need to look through that in a multifaceted way. Otherwise we end up in reductionism. And I know you don't think poor people are necessarily dumb. There's lots of reasons. And there's some smart people who are kind of dumb too and are lucky. Can you say that? Yeah, you know, lot, dumb you know, and lucky. Right? A lottery is like, how smart do you have to be to do a lottery? So, Right. <laughs> right? I mean, it's not about yeah. your intelligence. Or if you hand, or get handed a ton of money because your parents or family money, you know, you inherit a lot of money, that doesn't mean you're very smart. In fact, often that messes you up and shows how foolish you are. Yeah. Well, you're right. And, you know, you, you used your baseball analogy there, or your, your example, not an analogy, but the the example of your friend who can hit a fastball. And, you know, we might not see that as a necessary part of life, but there are, depending on where that person plays and who gets to watch, uh, he's making yeah. a lot of people happy that they're willing to pay for it. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just, I look at that as evidence that we have a society that, that can afford, not everyone can afford to, to go to see a baseball game or something, but that can have people who can afford that kind of level of pleasure um, and that we can, and that you can write a book about this as well. Yeah. You know, that you can, you yeah. can, that that's in some ways a luxury, uh, right? It is. It uh, is a different kind of luxury. Yeah. Historically it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I have one more question for you and that is, you know, I'm guessing at your church, you talk with businessmen and businesswomen who are owners, or maybe they're just business managers, and maybe they're just, they take seriously what you are teaching in this book. What are some of the things that you do to advise or maybe mentor business owners in, in your community, or just maybe not even necessarily in your church congregation, but what are some, some of your advice for, for those who run businesses and who, or just manage them? What are your what are your thoughts on how to do this well with a gospel-centered approach? Yeah, I, you know, when I first started being a pastor, I wouldn't have known how to answer that question because I never addressed it. I mean, I had such a Sunday to Monday gap and so much malpractice that I primarily spoke in just to their family life and Sunday life and maybe a couple spiritual disciplines. So I'm just saying the shift in my paradigm of vocational faithfulness now not only has hospital visits, but workplace visits. I mean, I deep, I am deeply involved in those conversations as a discipler and as a pastor and as a equipper of my congregation. So I want you to know that, that, you know, I, I preach differently, I pray differently, but I have very different conversations around a cup of coffee with my business leaders or a marketplace leaders. So you're very astute in your question. And yeah, how, what would that look like? Several things would be common. One is we would talk about the economics of mutuality. We talk about a triple bottom line or a quadruple bottom line that, um, and an audience of one. So I'd say an audience of one that, that I work and live before God ultimately. I'm accountable for. I'll, I'll stand before God for my life, what I've done with what God has given me. And I, I, I first go with an audience of one because I think we need to live each day as it's, as it's our last for our audience of one. So I'll talk about an audience of one versus an audience of many. I mean, I think that's foundational as a disciple of Jesus. That changes the whole game to me if we live before an audience of one. Secondly, again, I will talk about in my workplace calling – 
my stewardship is multiple bottom line. I have a high stewardship of profitability, but I have other stewardship. So, I mean, that's the kind of economics and mutuality I would talk about. Uh, we would talk about how do you nourish an organizational culture that helps people flourish. So, we talk about values, um, the importance of, a, of an organizational culture. Uh, that would be very common in my conversations. That Because how an organization, as leaders, if they're a leader or wherever their pocket of greatness is using uh, Jim Collins' language, wherever they, God has placed them, they can have a profound influence on the company, the value creation, and the people around them. So I would say, how are you making a difference? How are you living a virtuous, Christ-like life in the quality of work you do? Do your work well, right? The only Christian work is good work well done, Dorothy Sayers said. So do it well. Be highly competent. Care for the people around you, right? That's what Jesus says. See it as a place for a gospel plausibility and gospel proclamation. In other words, the work we do, wherever we are in the organization, Jesus says, when people see our good works and good work is a part of works, they will glorify the Father in heaven. So I'm, I'm saying, I would say audience of one, have a strong culture that you're working through, have a, have a triple bottom line or a quadruple bottom line, do your work really well, add value, see that as neighborly love. And if you're in a place of shaping a whole organization, understand that you have an incredible opportunity not only to bless people's life with dignity and quality jobs and economic well-being, but also bless the entire community and now a global community. I mean, can you think about historically? This, this stuns me, Doug. I mean, um, never before in human history, as far as we know, right, has an individual been able to love a neighbor they would never meet in another part of the globe? Now through the global economy, people can truly love a neighbor. I mean, not know them in a way we want to. There's only some of you who know. But through a global economy, an interconnected free market global economy, I can be in a cubicle somewhere in Kansas City and bless somebody in India that I would never meet. So I'm just saying in a global world, I tell business leaders, you're loving your neighbor, not only in your local company and your employees or whatever, but you're potentially loving an entire globe. So I just try to, those are the kind of conversations I have with them. And I pray for them and, and want to be an encouraging coach, just to encourage them to be faithful in their vocation. Excellent. Well, I, I think that everybody who owns a business should buy your book. And everybody who cares at all about what they do in life and how it affects those around them, how it affects the people that they want to do work for, how it affects those, uh, you know, even just on a theoretical level, um, I, I found the book uh very rich with uh, examples, rich with theology, economics. Um, you, you have some of the same. Uh, you quote from many of the people that I read from as well, uh, which is which is good to know. So I really want to thank you for your insight, uh, for the book, for joining us today on on this program. Doug, thank you so much. It was uh, great being with you, and all the best to you and to all the listen. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you would like to reach out and give us some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can find us on our website, libertarianchristians.com, and we can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Libertarian Christians.